the reading this morning is from a book by Barbara Brown Taylor called An Altar in the World, a reading we had picked out, I had picked out before the events of Friday, but takes on a deeper, deeper sense when we hear it in light of that. Barbara Brown Taylor is talking about um, leading a workshop, this workshop called Embodied Holiness, Embodied Holiness, and she says, This workshop drew a full house of 34 women and six men, both clergy and lay leaders. Like me, they were interested in exploring how they knew what they knew about God, and also, like me, they confessed cognitive bias, at least in polite company. Most of us knew what we knew about God from the historical creeds of the church, from studying the Oxford Annotated Bible with other people, from reading books by favorite authors and from listening to certain people speak. At least that was how we thought we knew what we knew about God. Then one morning we explored the Beatitudes, only instead of talking about them, we decided to embody them. In groups of five or six, people went off to different corners of a large room with one verse that they were charged with bringing to life. The assignment was to arrange the members of the group into a tableau that embodied the beatitude without using any words and then to show that beatitude to the rest of the group. As you can imagine, the resistance to doing this was enormous, (laughs) verging on panic in a couple of cases. We were adults, after all. Kids act things out. Adults discuss them. (laughs) Plus, most of us had memorized the Beatitudes. We could say them in our sleep, and we had all heard more sermons on them than any of us wanted to count. I watched a couple of seasoned pastors eye the door (laughs) to see if they could get out before anyone stopped them. One priest volunteered to be the corpse in her Beatitude so that she would not have to do anything (laughs) but just lie there. The beatitude was, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn. In the end, everyone stayed put, thanks largely to a number of emerging leaders who I am pretty sure were all eldest children. (laughs) So that's the scene that she set up. These groups go off. After about 15 minutes, the groups began to perform. We did not go in order, so the first beatitude was about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Five women came out, arranged themselves in a circle facing out, and turned into a bunch of baby birds, all squalling for food. They used their hands to make big beaks so that they were just mostly mouths. One looked like she was going to die if she did not get something to eat real soon. She was barely peeping. Then the mama bird showed up and flew around the circle with food in her beak, filling each of her babies in turn. They rose and flapped as she approached. They grew right before our eyes. Then one by one, the beaks turned to wings and the babies flew. It was so strong that no one spoke. The five women moved out of the center of the room as another group took their place. We watched another stunning beatitude, and then another, finally, the blessed are those who mourn group came. 
all women again, and arranged themselves around the woman who had volunteered to lie dead on the ground. A second woman sat down and cradled the first woman's head in her lap. Two others knelt beside her, and two others stood over them until they made a sort of cathedral over the dead woman's body. Everyone was touching someone so that they were all linked together. But unlike the first group, no one moved. The women just held that pose, so full of love and grief, until a sob rose out of the midst of them. Those of us watching did not know what to do. Was that the end? That sad, sad sound could have been planned, but it it didn't sound planned. What was going on? Was this pretend, or was this real? Those of us watching the tableau froze just like those who were in it. Then, when the whole room was as still as a grave, the body of the woman on the floor began to heave. As her soft sobbing grew louder, the other women bent over her. Then one of them began to weep, and another gave a small strangled yelp until the whole tableau was heaving ever so gently over the body of the dead woman who had come back to life. I cannot tell you how long it lasted, a minute, an hour, But at some point, the women straightened up and wiped their eyes while the rest of us offered our feeble applause. What did it mean? Beats me. All I know is that God was there in the flesh and that no one who saw it will ever forget it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The assignment was to bring to life the words. Now they will never lie quietly on the page for me again because five women gave their lives to the words. They took them all the way to the edge of what they knew to do. Then the divine spirit took them further and everything was made new. The women, the watchers, and the words. When I read, when I hear, when I share with you that story from Barbara Brown Taylor about this group of women making that beatitude, making grief and mourning and sorrow and blessing, making that real, everything I think I know about incarnation is upended. So it lifts up a lot of questions in me, questions I don't normally ask, questions maybe we don't normally ask because, especially in this church, we don't talk about incarnation that much. I don't really think we think about it that much either. But if we are going to make sense and figure out the way forward from this tragedy on Friday, if we are going to make sense of the Christmas holiday, if we are going to make sense of the carols we sing and the pageants we come to as we watch our children in them, then I think we need to spend a little bit of time with incarnation. 
I want to just start with the word itself, incarnation. Carne is the root of that word. It means flesh. It means body. It means meat. It means, so incarnation means in the flesh, in the body. Depending on the faith tradition you grew up with, you may have some very powerful associations with this word. In the beginning, there was the word, and the word became flesh, it's incarnation, and then dwelt among us. The word, in that context in Greek, it's logos. It means the essence of things, the source from which all other things spring. So you could hear it this way. In the beginning was the source, and the source became flesh and lived and walked among us. For many of us, this story, how can it not, brings to mind the birth story of Jesus. That's what this in the beginning was the word. That's what that's about. The story goes, Jesus was born in a manger to a virgin mother Mary. There were angels and stars and shepherds and magi. There's an evil king, Herod. There's an escape to Egypt. Those of you who know this story really well know that there's a part of that story where King Herod, alarmed at this savior, this Messiah, this king coming into the world, orders that all firstborn children be killed. It's called the slaughter of the innocents in that biblical story. And so I think we would do well to look again at this story and how it speaks to our lives today in this time, how we might re-understand what incarnation means in our time, in our context. At its heart, this is a story about God coming into the world, into the flesh, made real in the form of this little newborn baby in this backwater city, Bethlehem, at the edge of the Roman Empire, this powerful, wealthy empire some 2,000 years ago. But the story leaves us with a lot of questions around Christmas time. It leaves us with questions around incarnation. As Barbara Brown Taylor writes, and maybe this rings true for you, she says, when I was first taught the concept of incarnation, I was taught to capitalize it, capital I. The incarnation happened just once in one person a very long time ago. In Jesus alone was God's word made flesh. Barbara Brown Taylor continues, she continues, she says, as his follower, my job was to trust that that was true, and to persuade others that it was true as well. The incarnation was presented to me as an article of fact. It was a unique event that involved Jesus and no one else, and the fate of my own flesh depended on my acceptance of that fact. That's how Barbara Brown Taylor learned this, and I suspect many of you as well. You grew up in a church where that, a Sunday school teacher or a priest or a minister or a lay leader said, Here's what incarnation means, and the fate of your spirit, your body, your flesh depends on you believing that. And presented with that stark option, you sort of walked away. Many of you have told me this. You just sort of left. You said, that, that, that doesn't make sense. And so it's no wonder we turn from that story. It's no wonder we turn from incarnation. But then I read that story from Barbara Brown Taylor. These women living out, embodying, incarnating the beatitude, and I think there's more here. There's something we need to come back to. There's a simple way to understand incarnation, a very simple way we can understand incarnation, and that is as our condition. We live in skin. We live in bodies. We live 
in flesh. It is our spirit's home. Living in flesh, in bodies, it's what the living do. I don't know how much we think about this on a day-to-day basis, except, except when we notice parts of our bodies, sometimes parts we don't like, parts we maybe hate or loathe. Maybe there are parts we love and we stop. We just stop and say, I live in this body and I, I love this part of this body. When we're in pain, we talk about a broken heart. We notice we live in a body because the feelings, the, the, the anguish, the lament, it's in our body, in our cells. And every so often, something really will wake us up. We catch sight when we're awoken. We catch sight of what it means to be alive in a body, a body that can sing and dance, that can hold hands, that can carry babies and young children, a body that can worship and pray, a body that can make love. We catch sight of that, and we see something remarkable. We realize this body will age and become fragile, but it is a body that loves this world, loves to touch, loves to smell the pine of the Christmas tree or the lilacs in spring. In those moments, we know, we sense that this is a holy temple, this body we live in. That's a very basic, simple way to understand incarnation. We live in bodies, we are flesh, and it's what the spirit likes to dress up in, this flesh. But incarnation, the word becoming flesh, can be understood in another way as well. And here's what I mean by that. At this church and in our lives, we use words like love and justice and hospitality and compassion. We use those words all the time. Those words are important because they, they hold our highest aspirations. They're, they're an arrow or a pointer of how we want to be in the world, how we want to be as a faith community. But those words by themselves, those words just in a mission statement or just spoken, they're empty, they're hollow, they're dry bones with no muscle, no flesh attached. Here's a concrete example of that. You might say to someone you love, I love you. But unless those words really have taken root in your body, in your cells, in your actions, they don't mean nearly as much as they could mean. On the other hand, if you say, I love you to someone, and that is expressed as a gentle touch or as a putting down of the iPhone or a turning off of the computer or the television, if it's deep listening to another person, if it's acknowledging someone else's interests and growth, as important as your own interests and growth, then that is love embodied. That is love incarnated, love made real. And that's, that's where the broader understanding of incarnation, the word made flesh, comes into play for me, for us, I think. We throw those words around, love, hospitality, compassion, truth, even grief. Well, the truth is... Love needs a body to live in. Hospitality needs a body to live in. Justice needs a body to live in. Those words, they have to come alive in our flesh, in our bodies for them to mean anything at all. Jesus, 
in his body, just like Buddha in his body, just like lots of other teachers made real a radical love and compassion. But it could have been, and this is our theological take on this, it could have been any body, any single body. So I think about Isabella Bomfrey. Probably none of you know. Maybe a few of you know Isabella Bomfrey. You probably know her by her other name, the name she took on when she wanted to embody truth. I'm talking about Sojourner Truth here. She took on that name because she felt called by the Spirit to become a feminist and an abolitionist and to make her body be the vehicle to speak out. She's best known for her convention in 1851 at this women's gathering talking about equality, women's equality, but a radical abolitionist as well. So in her body, she made that truth that all people are created equal. She made that alive. She incarnated that. The word became flesh. And I think of Rosa Parks, who after months of preparation and training with hundreds of other civil rights activists, she came out of a community, she made justice and dignity and nonviolence come alive in her body. She sat on a bus, she said, I'm not moving, and what lived in her body was dignity and nonviolence and justice. I think of the nameless young man, you've seen this photo, 13 years ago or so it was, this nameless young man in Tiananmen Square with a line of Chinese tanks behind him just standing in front of that line of tanks. He represented hundreds, probably thousands of students who were protesting against a corrupt government for freedom of the press, for, for basic democracy. He embodied in his body courage. I think of this woman from just a couple of years ago. There was this story in the Star Tribune, this woman who was assaulted in Powderhorn Park by a group of of young men. It was a horrific, horrible thing. And I remember reading this and being so moved by this woman's response. She, She, despite the violence that was done to her, she was responding with compassion and forgiveness for these young men who had attacked her. Her neighbors explained in this article that it was her practice, I think it was a Buddhist practice, of sitting with compassion and kindness that allowed her to embody those in, in her being and to live that in the days that came. Incarnation. The word made flesh. The essence of life. Love, compassion, justice made flesh. Not just one time. 2,000 years ago, but all the time in each of us as we awaken. There's a story that Rebecca Parker tells in her book, House of Hope, that goes like this. In Bosnia in 1992, the principal cellist of the Sarajevo opera, and I may pronounce his name here, Vedran uh, Samelovic, Vedran Samelovic, he heard a mortar shell burst in the street near his home. And it was quickly followed by screams. People had been standing in line to buy bread from one of the few remaining bakeries that was open, and this mortar shell had landed there. And when he looked out his window, he saw that 22 people had been killed. Grieved and shocked, he wanted to do something. But what? What could he do? 
And so he did what he felt that he as an artist could do. He dressed up in his formal concert clothes. He went out the next afternoon and he sat where the shell had burst and he played a plaintive adagio in G minor. He played every afternoon for the next 22 days, one day for each person killed. Then he kept playing day after day. He played to ruined homes. He played to smoldering fires. He played to scared people hiding in their basements. He played for human dignity. That is the first casualty of war. Ultimately, he played for life, for peace, for the possibility that hope exists even in the darkest hour. Asked by a journalist whether he was crazy for what he was doing, he replied, you ask me if I am crazy for playing the cello? Why do you not ask if they are crazy for shelling Sarajevo? In the midst of terror and destruction, the word became flesh. Here was a man making real in the world, in his body, a dream of peace and hope in his body. In the midst of terror and destruction, the word became flesh. So we have the word love, hope, compassion, peace. They all need bodies to live in. More than that, more than that, they need a faith community to be anchored in, to be practiced in, because without practice, without practice, friends, we know it can be really easy to incarnate something else. We can incarnate indifference. We can incarnate a numbness, a cynicism. We can incarnate violence. We can incarnate things that do real hurt in this world. We know it takes practice and discipline to truly have love, peace, justice live in our bodies, and it is not easy. But it is why, as Rebecca says, we need a faith community because the church's purpose is to incarnate divinity through acts of compassionate love. This is what we're here to do as a faith community. In Jesus' name, if that works for you. In Buddha's name, if that works for you. In Sojourner Truth's name, if that works for you. Rosa Parks' name, in the name of all the saints and teachers. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, Jesus spent his last night on earth teaching his disciples to wash feet and share supper. With all of the conceptual truths in this teacher's mind that he had at his disposal, he did not give them things to think about when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do, specific ways of being in their bodies together, right? We hold hands. Ways they could be in their bodies together to care for one another, to clothe one another, to serve one another. Our work is to incarnate the love that is at the heart of things. That means we are called to be love's people, to make that love real in our bodies in the world. So the Christmas story is a reminder of what can live in human flesh, what words can become flesh, because the words need flesh to live in. And the promise of the season is that those words can be born and live in any body. It can happen anywhere, anytime. 2,000 years ago, sure. It can happen in the, the suburbs or the city of Minneapolis. It can happen 
anywhere. It is not about a specific time and a singular event or even a particular religion. It is about us as human beings, as flesh and spirit beings, making the word, the essence, the heart of life. The heart of life, which is love, which is God, which is love, making that real in our bodies. So this moment for me in our history right now, this moment in light of what happened is a chance to wake up one more time. A chance to say our culture is sick. And there are many, many things our culture would have us do. Numb out, turn, turn to is, oversaturate ourselves with horror and with, and with news. Our culture makes us sick. Our culture is one that makes us, us suffer, and so we don't know what to do with that suffering, and so it becomes violence or it becomes self-hate. We medicate. We, we have addictions. Our culture is unhealthy, and this church, this community, you all, when we come together, it's a chance to wake up and to say there's a different way we can move in this world. There's a different orientation we can have in this world. These aren't just abstract ideas, love and justice and compassion. Those can awaken in us this time, this season, and take root in us. As Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, the assignment the assignment, life's assignment, is to bring the words to life. To take them all the way to the edge of what we know what to do with them. To take them all the way to the edge of what we know what to do with them and then to trust that the divine spirit will take them further still and everything will be made new. Us, those around us, and even the words themselves. Take them all the way we can. Trust the divine spirit will help us take it even further, and then everything might become new. Us and those around us, and even the words themselves. Friends, look around you. These are your fellow. That was... I'm serious, people. Like, these are your brothers and sisters. We have families. We, our hearts are broken. Take a minute just to look at the people around you. We are wound up in each other's lives. We hold and care for one another. Our hearts are broken and after this service, we will stand side by side with one another and our children to do what we can do, which is serve others, which is to clothe the naked, which is to feed the hungry. That is what we are making real with our bodies. I love you, even if I don't know you. I love you, and I want you to know in this place, you are held by a love that will not let you go. Amen.